0: in the middle of Romans, chapter 5, this morning. Where in this divine word given to the church in Rome in the first century, but also given to each and every one of us here this morning, this is what we hear. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let us pray. Lord, we have just sung and we believe in our hearts of your We thank you for another week where you have promised to meet us in and through your word. We pray that just as we sung, this word would provide for us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, it would be an understatement to say that Jesus was, is, and always will be a polarizing figure the promise of his coming itself created a divide amongst humanity dividing it between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan and you can read about that in Genesis 3 then in his arrival in the flesh his arrival sparked great conflict between him and the religious leaders of the day so much so that they in the plan of God falsely accused, and criminally charged, and crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And even now, as he reigns over all things at the right hand of his Father, we see conflict between the church, which is his body, and the world. Jesus says in Mark 13 that we will be hated by all for his name's sake, openly Publicly professing Christ, the Christ of the Scripture, will lead you to be shunned, to be left alone, to be persecuted, to be fired, and all other kinds of negative reactions will come your way. And today, in the public square, Jesus is either openly mocked or made palatable for the world. He's either openly mocked or made palatable palatable for the world and we saw i think two glaring examples of this last week with the super bowl okay i don't know how many of you watched the super bowl i did it but i i did see some of the commercials and um hey we're gonna talk about a few of those really quick so two examples of this in a trailer for the new deadpool film now deadpool is a marvel superhero uh, very crude, but very popular. Anyways, in the trailer, he jokingly refers to himself as the Messiah, as the Marvel Jesus. The thought being that his film's going to save the Marvel franchise from irrelevancy. So here, Jesus is openly uh, made light of and disrespected. Or consider that He Gets Us commercial, right, which has created some stir on the interwebs. Uh, maybe even discussions with friends and family as well. uh, The commercial consists of a number of scenes of individuals washing other people's feet though with hot-button issues such as immigration or abortion or LGBTQ acceptance. At the forefront, it ends with the slogan, Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet, he gets us. That's it. That's, that's the commercial, not a word about faith or repentance or being born again or the law or the gospel or the death of Christ. You know, the very things that our Lord discussed in his earthly ministry and consequently the kinds of things that offend the natural man. Ironically, perhaps tragically, I think the scoffing words of Deadpool are actually more... In line with the truth, then he gets us commercial because at least Deadpool was intimating that Jesus actually delivers people, that he actually saves people. Where you don't really get the impression of that with the other commercial. No doubt, Jesus gets us. But thinking about all of this, we can ask, do we get Jesus? Have we lost our bearings when it comes to who Jesus is, both for us personally and for human history as well, And so this morning we want to look at the death of Christ anew to more fully discover who this Jesus is that we as Christians believe in and we as Christians worship and we as Christians live for. So I have three points. The first is that the death of Christ should shock us. The death of Christ should shock us. What shocks us? What shocks you? What produces alarm and awe in your hearts these days? Semi-annual sales, an unexpected new season of your favorite show, maybe a new coffee flavor or seasonal flavor at your favorite coffee joint. We all get that, right? We're human. I, I have those kinds of... Moments of shock and awe too, and I see something I like, you know, maybe a sale for some skateboards. Uh, we get that, you know, we're human. Well, the Scripture invites us to a holy shock, to be shocked by something worthwhile, something sacred, something of world historical import. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God the one who shared glory with the Father and the Spirit before all time and all space, he has died for sinners. Do you see the way the Bible describes us in our B.C. days? In other words, in our days before we came to know Christ. Verse 6, we were, quote, still weak, meaning we were unable to lift ourselves up from our native condition in order to approach God in any meaningful way. The Westminster Confession of Faith helpfully explains this. It says, Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself there to, thereunto. Then in verse 6, we read that we were the ungodly. Verse 8 says, while we were still sinners. And verse 10 says, while, or that, rather, that we were reconciled while we were enemies. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies, this is who we were. Then consider further what the apostle says, that it is rare, 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 in fact, highly unlikely, but possible, logically possible, we see a few instances of this in history, that someone would die for a morally upright or just person. And someone might die for a real life Mr. Rogers, someone that all people would consider good and worthy and noble, Uh, but even still, that's unexpected. It's not anticipated that such a thing would happen. And if I'm not likely to give up my life for a noble person, then I'm certainly not going to give up my life for somebody who is morally corrupt. And I'm certainly not going to give my life up for somebody who's morally corrupt and who personally hates me, who personally despises me. But the gospel... And the glory of the gospel and the glory of God's love is this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were entirely unlovable, God showed his love for us. God showed his love for us. And this was a real love, not a love in simply word or talk but one demonstrated in word and in truth. First Peter 3:18 says, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God." And this should automatically rid us of any illusion of thinking that somehow we can earn our favor or standing with God, that we can earn His love. It's clear as day here. His love doesn't originate in you. There was nothing in you that was worthy of love. He loves you because He loves you, because it was His good pleasure to set His love on you. God's love is mysterious. You know, you think about it, you know, why should He set His love on the likes of us? But this mysteriousness also makes it something to marvel at, something to be in awe of. The Bible is taking a moment to show us what is actually worthy of our attention and what is worthy of our imitation. What is worthy of our attention, of our care, and what is worthy of our imitation. So as this truth of God's love washes over you, as you meditate on it, by grace, let it lead you to love those around you. 1 John three sixteen through 18 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. There's the truth. There's the redemptive fact and reality. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That is the proper Christian response to this love. But he goes on, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And God's love and his wisdom is also manifested in the timing of all of this. Now, sometimes we have a hard time with God's timing, don't we? You know, if we're honest, I think sometimes we think that God is, is late to get the memo. You know, he doesn't share our urgency with the things that we have a desire for. We want what we want, and we want it now. But deep down, as the people of God, we know God is perfect in all of his ways, including in the ways that he providentially orders human history, including our own individuals, individual histories. And so I think this verse... Romans chapter five, especially verse six, that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, that it provides a lesson for all of us. Namely that God is always on time and God's timing is the best timing. And we know that because it was at the right time that Christ died for the ungodly. And if God is taking care of the big thing, namely our reconciliation in a perfectly timed manner, And in a time when we needed it the most, then certainly we can trust him to be timely in all of the smaller matters we become concerned with in this life. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we should not fret when it seems that God is delayed in his actions. No, God is still on the throne. He still has the world in his hands and he's never made a bad call yet so we can we can trust in god with our matters both big and small so the death of christ should shock us but the death of christ should also assure us it should also assure us the death of christ brings so much to the human life as we've been talking about it brings redemption it also brings great light and insight into the heart of God. It shows us what true love looks like. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It shows us God's love of justice. Through this death, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit, but, and this is key to our passage here, the death of Christ also brings us assurance that God's favor rests on us, that it rests on us today, and that it will rest on us in the future, come what may. And the apostle gives us two assurances to hang our hats on, two ironclad truths that are so sturdy and steadfast that they will withstand even the worst storms in life. And the first is found in verse nine. We're gonna look at verse nine for a second. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God better than the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament, better than the blood, sweat, and tears we might exert in seeking to make up for our own sins is the infinitely valuable blood of Jesus Christ. Christ's blood here is the means by which we are justified. It is the price paid for our lives. And here's the point. Not only does... Christ's blood remove our guilt now in the present, but it also removes us out of the way of eternal danger in the future. In a similar vein, we hear this much the same thing in 1 Thessalonians one ten, where the apostle speaks of Jesus, quote, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So if we've been justified now, then we can be assured that we are not only forgiven now, but that we are also have been delivered from the way of God's wrath. And if that wasn't enough, another dose of assurance is administered in the following verse. In verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Again, here, as in the last verse, Paul is employing a form of argumentation. It's called an a fortiori argument, where one argues from the greater to the lesser. I spoke in this way earlier, arguing that if God was timely in answering our greatest need, uh, namely our salvation, then surely he can be depended on to be timely with our smaller needs. And if while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by Jesus' death, then how much more can we expect to be saved on that last day by his life? James Montgomery Boyce hopefully summarizes this. If God has done the greater thing, he will do the lesser. If he has saved us while we were enemies, he will certainly save us as friends. And what are we to make of this phrase, by his life? Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We know that the life of Jesus while he was here on the earth was a life of perfect obedience to the will of God, an obedience, the merit of which we receive through faith alone when we are justified. But here the apostle's talking about something different. He's talking about Jesus' resurrection life, his post-ascension life, his glorious life, whereby he rules and reigns over all things at the Father's right hands, at the Father's right hand. Brothers and sisters, though Jesus died on the cross, he did not stay dead. The Father raised him from the dead on the third day. So be assured and find comfort in the fact that we serve a living Savior who even right now intercedes on your behalf, who even right now directs world history for the spiritual good of his church, who even right now is alive forevermore and holds the keys of death and Hades. Romans eight thirty four says, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Glory to God, glory to God. The death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ are to us a sure sign of our final deliverance, a sure sign of the guarantee of our final deliverance. And now, finally, uh, more in the way of application, our third point, the death of Christ should lead us to rejoice, The death of Christ should lead us to rejoice. Now, Paul can't help but respond to this good news, but with a shout of acclamation. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is so pure. This is so beautiful. This is human behavior at its absolute finest, fulfilling its divinely intended goal of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. We glory in Him because of who He is, because He is majestic in holiness, infinite in patience, eternal in His wisdom, but also for His great works toward us. For instance, for gifting us with reconciliation. Notice, reconciliation is something that Uh, Not something that we achieve, but it's something that we receive. Not something we achieve, something we receive. And we see this also in Psalm 150, in the second verse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. We praise Him for what He's done, but we praise Him for who He is, according to His excellent greatness. And all of this is opposed to the attitudes we found earlier, In the book of Romans, for instance, in chapter one, where we saw that the unbelieving Gentile world, though knowing God, though seeing his goodness displayed in creation, utterly refuses to honor him and to glorify him. Or in chapter two, where the Jews gloried in their own moral uprightness. The Christian, on the other hand, does not rejoice in his or her own self, but in God through Jesus Christ. This is very much the height of human faith and emotion. This is the height of human faith and emotion. Earlier in the chapter we observed that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and that we rejoice in our sufferings, but here we rejoice in God himself who is our highest good. But take note of what also attends this rejoicing in God, what attends this God-centered view of rejoicing, that it takes place through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The Bible's God-centered view of rejoicing is also Christ-centered. In these six verses alone, we find Jesus mentioned at least seven times and biblical joy like biblical peace is through Christ alone. Well, perhaps you're thinking this morning, I don't actually quite know if I rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, then I encourage you to seriously consider the gift that you have been given. Consider that you have peace with God. Consider that you have free access to him. Consider that your sufferings aren't in vain. Consider that God loves you. Consider that Christ died for you. Consider that your inheritance in the new creation is secured because of Jesus. And consider that Jesus is interceding on your behalf even today or to turn things upside down, consider what your life would be like without these gifts. No peace with God, no access to God, your suffering is pointless, God doesn't love you, Christ didn't die for you, you have no everlasting inheritance, and Jesus is not interceding on your behalf today. When you consider things in that light, I think the weight of all of this should become much more manifest and much more clear. The sheer abundance of spiritual blessings we have in Christ Jesus is astounding. And the beautiful thing is that these things remain the same regardless of our circumstances. Whatever your circumstances are. Whether things are going great, whether things are going awful, whether things are somewhere in the middle. So, Brothers and sisters, whatever your circumstances are this week, remember this one thing. You have a reason to rejoice, and that reason is Jesus Christ crucified for you and raised from the dead for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that these truths concerning your son and his death would not grow dull upon our hearts, but would continue to to shock us and to alarm us, that they would continue to bring assurance to our heart of hearts, God, and that they would continue to cause us to rejoice. Though the world be aflame with chaos and destruction, though our lot be like Job's lot, God, may your gospel still work deep in our hearts so that we find the reason to rejoice, namely because of Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all of these things, and we pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name alone. Amen.